Hey folks, we are here at uh, GitLab Commit. Uh, I'm talking to Eddie. Sorry, you just told me how to say your name, Zaneski from DigitalOcean. And uh, yeah, we were we were just talking about Ruby Rogues. It's kind of fun. But um, yeah, you have you given your talk yet, or you're giving it later today? I don't remember. I did. I gave one of the the live coding keynotes. Okay, good deal. And you were you were talking about uh, CI/CD with Kubernetes and GitLab, right? Correct. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Do you want to just kind of give us the five-minute elevator pitch for your talk? Yeah, sure. So I've spent, so I'm far from a CI/CD expert, just like not at all. Um, you know, I've used it a bunch for some open source projects. And so by, you know, um, diving into to GitLab, uh, they're one of our big partners in our marketplace, right? So I've been using it a bit more, playing with uh, pipelines a bit more. And, uh, you know, in preparation for this talk, the, the, the big hot take that I have and takeaway is that like CICD is really just a bunch of janky shell scripts that are like grouped together really nicely. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And uh, so I was talking to Sid last night at dinner. I expected him to argue with me, but he, he uh, best practices for CICD manifests. The, uh, it basically will take your application. You don't even have to know what Docker is. It'll build into a container for you as long as you follow some basic standards. Uh, it will do uh, scanning on it for your dependencies, vulnerabilities, open source license, all that jazz. Uh, ship that off to a Kubernetes cluster that you configure. Set up DNS, uh, TLS, rotate out your certificates, take care of everything, and then uh, do performance testing. And Sid said that they're working on load testing afterwards as well, right? So um, that's Auto DevOps in a nutshell. And so my talk was basically deploying a, uh, a fake startup that I came up with called ScreamingChicken.Club. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it used Auto DevOps. And so it basically you know, went through the whole pipeline of starting with a, an application, uh, building it into the, the, you know, the container and, and shipping it off to Kubernetes. So that's awesome. That's definitely something that I need to look into for two reasons. One is that uh, I'm going to be doing a podcast episode on containerizing a Rails app. For, um, cool. I'm going to, be, but I'm going to be doing it live. So yeah, I have to prepare for it, obviously. But I'm going to be doing it live at Microsoft Ignite as a podcast episode. So I'm probably just going to talk about it. You know, do do kind of what we're doing here. But we're also working on a system to help manage the podcasts. And it's all written in Ruby on Rails. And so I'd like to get it to the point where we have some CI CD pipeline. Currently, we're using Cloud 66. And so the deploy is easy, but it deploys to a VPS. And I have to make sure that all the packages get updated regularly. And it's, it's a manual process. And so, yeah, uh, I'd love to just figure out how to get that going. Um, now, one thing that I'm curious about is, is the auto DevOps a feature that is available to me if I'm not paying for GitLab? Yeah, it's uh, completely free for open source projects. Uh, even the in-project container registry is free. So I don't know how many you know layers and versions of your app they keep, but uh, they were all there from all my test and trial runs. The I think there's it's like ten or twelve features. Uh, some of them are paid for with um, you know a private repo. So mo mostly entirely all free for open source and a bunch of free features for private repos too. Good deal. Yeah, mine's under a private repo, so we'd have to figure that out. But um, I'm, I'm loving the idea of just, yeah, doing a push and then having it all checked out. Um, so it, it pushed Kubernetes. I'm assuming that was the Kubernetes setup on DigitalOcean. Yeah, so it was, you can use any um, Kubernetes cluster. The GitLab has a GKE uh, OAuth feature built right in. So it's like a one click. You can create a, a, a 
GKE cluster or pick one from a list. That's Google's, right? Yeah, that's okay. Google's. Uh, GCP's, yeah, Google Cloud Platform's yeah. uh, Kubernetes engine. And um, so I, I believe that GitLab's working on adding other cloud providers to that. I think DigitalOcean's one of them. I know there's an issue for it somewhere. Uh, but I used a, a DigitalOcean managed Kubernetes um, a cluster. And the it's real simple to import them. You just have to grab like the API URL of the, the Cube API server, uh, the CA cert for your cluster, and then you have to create a service account, bind that to a cluster role binding of cluster admin, grab the service token, right? So it's, it's, it's easy, but it's like a bunch of like manual stuff. Uh, I actually wound up writing a Cube Control plugin that automates all of that for you. And so I open source that. And so you just run Cube Control GitLab Bootstrap. Uh, give it the project ID from your, your GitLab project, and it will set everything up for you. And GitLab is working on building out API support for installing Helm and Tiller and a bunch of other cool applications they provide. So basically, this plugin will take care of everything eventually. That makes sense. I guess one other thing that I'm running into with this app is that uh, the original developer, I have no idea who that was, um, kind of didn't do a lot of testing and, and I'm feeling a little bit guilty about that now because I really want to do CI CD, but I don't want to deploy things that are going to break things, if that makes sense. And we've been running into issues too. I have another developer working on things now and yeah, he, he puts in a new feature and then my team goes, Oh, it's broken. Right. So, um, is there a process that you like for kind of easing into this so that it's not so painful if you have some of these issues? Yeah, so the nice thing about Auto DevOps, and I focused on this in my talk, is that you don't have to use all 12 of those features. Um, they're all templated out. So the best part about GitLab is that it's open source, obviously, right? And so all of those uh, features are, you can look at the code. And it's, it is just one big CI/CD manifest of, you know, YAML and janky shell scripts that got put together. Right. But, like, I didn't have to write it. And someone who knows way more than I do about CI/CDs who wrote it, right? right. So it, it inherently... And they're paying people to bang on it. Exactly, right? So the I in my talk, I pulled out the, the build one and the deploy one. Uh, and so you can skip the test one, right? And so the build one will use uh, Heroku-ish build packs. I think the test one does too. And so that'll detect you know, the app and the language and all that stuff you're using. Um, generate you a Docker file if you don't have one. But yeah, so because it's composable, you can just pull in those you know, two templates that's, that you want to work with and not worry about any of those stuff that's going to like fail or break. That makes sense. I guess the other thing that I'm running into is that, yeah, we're starting to break things up into services, right? So with the podcast app, for example, we have the kind of the main, I don't know, the mothership app, I guess. And then we have another app that just does the download tracking, right? And we're probably going to wind up with maybe one or two others that manage other aspects. And so um, I guess I can just have Docker files for each of those and just have them all spin up. Is that kind of the idea? So you can turn all that into Docker files, or you can let Herokuish figure that out for you. Um, Docker Compose is a good way to take care of that. Um, shout out to Michael Herman from Test Driven IO. He's got a really great uh, blog post about doing all of this with GitLab, uh, DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, and uh, Docker Compose. So he builds like three different containers all in one pipeline and like test them all. It's a really cool blog post. So check that out. So for multiple services. Multiple services, right. So yeah, so Docker Compose makes that really easy. Um, and so you can, with your builds, you can break all of your steps out into different jobs or stages, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and then they can depend on each other, rely on each other, run in parallel. And so you can either test them all independently in one pipeline, separate pipelines. Um, yeah, it's, it's all super configurable. And then, so question for you though, actually, are you, so you say all these different services, are you using like Rails as like a microservice for all this stuff? So the Mothership app is uh, Rails and then the tracking app is Sinatra with, uh, it's backed onto um, Sidekick. And so, yeah, so essentially then for the one, the request comes in, it, tracks the essentially the download for the media and then it hands it off to sidekick to make sure that it's not a duplicate request and things like that and then it just redirects them on to wherever it's being hosted that's awesome the reason i ask is you know i i've been detached from the the rails and the ruby world for a handful of years now you know i, I really got involved with node and go very recently um and so seeing people talk about like rails microservices has just been like like wait what like when did that happen so i think a lot of people are really embracing that huh 
Yeah, I don't see so many people using Rails for microservices. Usually I see something a little more lightweight like uh, Rhoda or Sinatra or something like that, or just straight up Rack. Um, but yeah, or, or you'll see something like Node or, you know, sometimes people reach for that because they can essentially drop it into a Lambda function and then watch it run. Um, Ruby on Jets is another option for serverless. And so, yeah, you, you've got some options there. But yeah, I've been playing with all kinds of different things. And initially, I wanted to build it in a sort of Lambda function type setup. And, you know, because then I could just have it hit and it would just run the function. And then, you know, when that function completed, it would just call the other function to do the deduplication. And I would just pay for whatever Lambda wound up using. But um, it turned out to be simpler to do it this other way because I'd already done it before. That's awesome. I know, so I know Shopify is big on microservices and Rails. I've talked to them a lot at KubeCons. Um, so, okay, cool. And then the, it's, I like you, you're talking like the simple function calling approach and the callbacks. And I think, um, I think it's Michael Parham, right? Author of Sidekick. He wrote a blog post a couple of years ago. I don't know if you've seen it where he talked about his Stripe payment portal and he just used like CGI on his server with a, a Ruby script. Oh, uh, it's such a good blog post. It's like, it's probably like six or seven years old at this point, but he just had such a simple job. And he's like, you know what I did? I wrote a single Ruby shell script, uh, bash script. And, um, I have CGI call it. And it's like, it takes care of everything for me. Like this, you know, this simple interface of calling a function, you know, that we had a CGI, we're now using as lambdas and other stuff, so. Very cool. So what are your responsibilities at uh, DigitalOcean? Are you an evangelist? Are you a developer, architect? Or have you moved into like marketing or what? Yeah, so DevRel sits under marketing uh, at DigitalOcean, which does it many places. Uh, I serve as a service leader to the developer evangelist team at DigitalOcean. So I've got a team of a couple evangelists, uh, and we are, you know, working with the community. Um, DigitalOcean's got a couple great values that I really like. Uh, the big, the most important of which to me is uh, our community is bigger than ourselves, right? So everything we do is just like really focused on the community. We try to give back. Um, you know, well, we sponsored a bunch of uh, language conferences this year, right? So it was at GopherCon, uh, PyCon, RailsCon last year. And, you know, we don't, you know, we have a badge scanner and like, we don't really use it, right? Like, I don't want to scan people's badge. I don't want to give them an idea. Like, we are literally there just to give back to the community and interact. So that's awesome. So uh, you, you wind up talking at, at conferences like this too, I assume, as part of your job. Um, what should people know about DigitalOcean? I mean, in this context, you know, you, you do have Kubernetes clusters that you, it's a fairly recent thing, but yeah, you can do Kubernetes there. I've, I've hosted servers there for a long time. I actually need to go clean some stuff up over there because I have a bunch of servers running that I don't need anymore. But, but yeah, you know, if, if people need to know maybe one or two things about DigitalOcean as far as what you do and, and how you do it, what should they know? So I was at HashiConf last week and the uh, Amazon, not Amazon, sorry, uh, Microsoft Azure open source team uh, gave a demo keynote about a cool tool they built called Porter and kind of like orchestrates calling like Terraform and a bunch of other stuff. Right. And they did the demo with DigitalOcean's Kubernetes service. And oh, nice. People were like, oh, like, why are they using that over, you know, uh, AKS or something, right? So obviously they wanted to be like, show their platform agnostic, um, you know, really not make it like a marketing or product pitch. And they they went and they chose DigitalOcean to use as their demo. And, you know, we were talking to them afterwards and they're like, yeah, you know, we were like, we probably, you know, couldn't do it on Amazon, but like, you guys are like the Switzerland of cloud providers. And I think that's really, you know, what people can know about us is that we're just like, we're definitely viewed as like a, you know, independent third party out there, not tied to like any other big companies. Um, and we focus on open source technology. So everything we do is fully invested in open source, right? Like our Kubernetes product, uh, it's vanilla Kubernetes, right? It passes 100% for conformance testing. And it's uh, our cloud controller manager, which is like the component that, you know, lets us be DigitalOcean's cloud Kubernetes. Uh, that's all open source too. Same with our CSI, which is our container storage driver. Uh, all of that's open source, right? So everything we do is like really tried to open source. We invest in it. Uh, and then we focus on the building blocks. So our, our droplets, our servers have been around for a while, right? We were basically like a, a one product company for many years. And so now that we have a solid foundation, we're starting to build on top of our, our building blocks, right? So managed Kubernetes is actually just built
built on droplets. It creates droplets under the hood with a different image. Uh, our managed database platform is the same thing. That's built on top of our droplets. So. Nice. Now I'm assuming they recorded the talks and people will be able to watch it. Um, if people want to go check you out after they watch the talk or they're thinking, oh, this looks really cool. You know, what else is uh, going on over there? You know, wh where do they follow you and and how do they see what you're working on or thinking about these days? Yeah, so I am uh, at Eddie Zane. That's uh, E-D-D-I-E-Z-A-N-E -E -E on the internet. So um, GitLab, GitHub, Twitters, uh, email, EddieZane at uh, DigitalOcean.com. Um, so pretty much you can search that and find me everywhere. Good deal. Well, I, I personally can just uh, kind of attest to, you know, DigitalOcean always taking good care of me when I had issues. And, you know, I don't, I don't even think, it, you know, they knew who I was a lot of the time when I reached out. It was just, oh, okay, it's another customer that needs help. And I, you know, I got help fast, got help the right way. Um, and the other thing is, is like their documentation slash blog posts are awesome. Um, so if you're trying to figure out how to set up pretty much anything on a server, you don't even have to do it on Dig DigitalOcean, but you can go walk through their tutorials on how to do that stuff. And that's terrific stuff too. And um, I've talked to Brian Hogan a few times and he's kind of, uh, you know, runs a lot of that stuff. But yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about DigitalOcean. I mean, just just a great company and they've always done right by me. So um, if you're looking at learning Kubernetes and I'm, I'm, that's kind of the next thing on my list, um, then definitely go check them out. And that's just digitalocean.com. Is, is there anything else that people need to know in order to get started with DigitalOcean? Uh, no, there's not. Uh, you can just sign up for your account, uh, get some credit, hit the ground running. Um, I do want to plug one thing. We, uh, have you heard of Hacktoberfest before? So Hacktoberfest is, uh, this is the sixth year we're running it. It's a giant uh, open source uh, hackathon throughout the month of October. And um, basically, if you make four pull requests to open source projects, you get a free t-shirt. Uh, so we've been you know, running this in partnership with, uh, with GitHub, uh, Twilio, and uh, Dev.2 this year. And so, yeah, people should go participate in, in, in Hacktoberfest and get involved with some more open source projects and get some cool swag out of it. Good deal. Yeah, I'll just uh, plus one that. Who doesn't like free t-shirts, right? All right, well, thanks for coming and talking to me, Eddie. This episode is sponsored by Cloud66. I have a Rails application and I was looking for a flexible product that takes care of deployment and gives full control of my application so I can focus on developing my code. I came across Cloud66 for Rails, which deploys your Rails application onto any cloud or server. At first, I thought it's like Capistrano, but then I realized it's way more than just deployment and gets you to scale servers, replicate and backup databases, protect your servers with firewalls, and much more. It acts as your in-house DevOps team to build, deploy, and maintain your Rails applications. It's really developer-friendly, and no wonder that companies like Metrics, Glossies, CareerBuilder, Discovery Channel, and many development agencies and I are using Cloud66. You can try Cloud66 Rails for free and get $100 free credits with the code rubyrogues-19. That's rubyrogues-19 at cloud66.com. Hey, folks, we're here at GitLab Commit. Um, this is the first conference that they put on, and it's here in Brooklyn. Um, and I am talking to Shamik. Shamik. It's her fault. She, she said it funny. And yeah, anyway, Shamik. Uh, and you work for Coinbase. Yes, I do. And uh, you gave a talk earlier talking about security. Do you want to just kind of give us the elevator pitch for your talk and then we can dive into some of the ideas behind it? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, the core concept here is security historically has been a post-implementation process. Everybody's done, everybody's waiting. Now let's throw it through the security loop. Uh, what we found over, I guess, the last 50 years of doing this is that's super slow and sometimes you just completely scratch what you were doing, have to restart because the security just wasn't there. Or it's not tenable with what you want. So what are the technologies and techniques we can use to actually bring security much, much earlier into the development lifecycle? Like how do we think about it just from ideation and initial delivery uh, instead of waiting until we're just completely hosed? So what do you do then? I mean, yeah, I'm, most of my experience has been, uh, okay, we're done. Let's make sure nobody can get this stuff. <laughs> yeah, how do you figure that in? Yeah, so there's like two different perspectives of it. Uh, one is like, as a security professional, what do I care about? What do I think about? Uh, the second is, as a developer, what what do I what do I care about, and how do I approach this problem? 
Uh, so we just went ahead and broke it out into like, you know, decompose your problem, make it the simplest thing you can solve. And how do you actually solve that? Uh, what we did was started just providing our engineers and the developers on our team, just the, the fundamentals of our threat model, right? Like, Hey, regardless of what you're writing, if you're working on this type of product or this area, here are the things that can go wrong. Here's how we've seen them fail. Here's how we've generally fixed them. Here are the tools available to help you detect whether or not they are going to fail when you write code. So it's just like, you know, when you're making your unit integration test, we almost make it like test-driven development at that point, right? It's like security test-driven development, things that shouldn't go wrong uh, once everything else is working. Then we started working uh, like much more on the ideation side, mm -hmm. which is, okay, if that will address like common vulnerabilities as they happen, let's then go ahead and talk about like the, the architecture. How do you build something that isn't just completely like unsecureable? Right, because at the end of the day, if it's unsecurable, we've kind of failed, right? right? If we have a securable output, uh, we can make it work. It's just a matter of like, how much do we need to secure it before it's ready to go, or before it's fit for purpose? So one thing that I'm curious about, because you're talking about, I guess, making a plan and knowing what kinds of things can go wrong with your security. And yeah, and then baking that in. I'm not a security genius. So for me, it's like, uh, SQL injection and make sure they authenticate before they hit the API and then I'm lost, right? So, so how do you know what some of these issues could be? You know, what's funny. It's like for 95% of the use cases, you've covered the two things you probably need to care about, right? <laughs> so like you may not be a genius, but it turns out you don't have to be a genius, right? right? It's, it's great. Uh, and so this is part of once we lay out, Hey, so I'm at Coinbase. Coinbase is a digital currency exchange. Uh, you bring, you know, U.S. dollars. You get U.S. dollar tokens and U.S. dollar coins and whatnot. Um, in addition to Bitcoin and, and what what have you. So in that world, there's like two things we have to care about: uh, don't lose the money, uh, don't lose the user data. Right. Right. And so once you like get the fact that okay, the things that I do. T that touch money and user data are the things I need to highlight and focus on, right? Next thing is you go you go up to your friendly security engineer and they're probably like smiling like me and saying, hey, what are you working on? How can I help you? You're like, well, here's this huge architecture um, and I'm doing all of these things and here's the rough plan. And by the way, this is the data flow that touches the money. This is the data flow that touches the user data. Uh, these are the things that affect those user flows. Uh, what should we worry about? I've already taken care of like SQL injection and here's how I'm doing authentication. Uh, and then just use that as the, the brainstorming part, right? Spend time together. I'll, we'll just flag like, hey, ABC buzzwords in security. And you're like, well, what the heck do these ABC buzzwords actually mean? Like, okay, let me go show you an example. Let me dive into this. Um, adjacent to this, like kind of as an independent process, we offer security training, right? So you're like, hey, I'm not just going to tell you and give you all these requirements. I'm going to actually help you meet them. Right. right. And that's by like, okay, you said SQL injection. This is what it actually looks like. This is how we commonly solve it. By the way, if you're not using an ORM, you're probably going to shoot yourself in the foot. And if you're doing raw SQL query construction, like you increase the risk as well. Doesn't mean it's like completely unsafe to do, but more likely than not, somebody's going to come by and right. make a mistake here. Let's not like, let's find places where people make mistakes and just make it impossible to make a mistake. Yeah, that makes sense. And I like the idea of ongoing training. I think that's one area too that in addition to security, a lot of companies just fundamentally mess up. And by mess up, I mean don't do. And the reason is, is because, you know, they get so focused on these developer skills, right? Do you know React? Do you know Rails? Do you know Node? Do you know Express? Do you know, right? And so then it's, okay, well, um, go watch videos on those things, right? Instead of, you know, okay, well, you know, we're doing security, but we're not thinking about training on security. You know, we're, we're working as a team, but we're not training on how to work as a team. And so I see a lot of these gaps in the education that people get. And it really just boils down to these blind spots where it's like, well, you have to learn the latest version of React because we got to move to it. But it's, you don't need to learn the latest security practices because you know they just don't think about it yeah one of the things to add here it's like i do a little bit of hobby woodworking 
right? Um, turns out a, a table saw, it's a box that has a blade that spins really fast. Um, there's some instructional material about how to use a table saw. Like, you know, this is one kind of cut. Here's another kind of cut. Here are how things work. Don't put your but also don't put your fingers in it, right. right? Like that's one of the first things that they tell you. It's like tuck away your clothing that might get cat caught. In my case, tuck away my beard in case I'm getting really close to the blade for whatever dumb reason. Right, put your hair in a ponytail if it's if it's going to be in the way, but don't intersect with the blade in a place that's going to hurt you. It just makes it very obvious this thing spins. Mm -hmm. Now, for many physical systems, it's a lot easier for like us human beings uh, to identify that you know what that's a hot plate. It's probably going to hurt because I've touched a hot plate before and that hurt. Right, that's a spinning knife. It's probably going to cut. I've touched a knife before and now we're just making it move faster. Unlike the the technical side, like those metaphors and those analogies just aren't as good, right? It, unless you've suffered the failure before, you may not know that this is a failure to care about. And unless you've seen somebody suffer, like you can go on YouTube and watch accidents. I don't necessarily recommend it unless you've got the stomach for it. But if you want to see like how things go wrong and what, what it looks like afterwards, you can go just look at it. Um, nobody's going to show you security failures. Right? They're not going to say, here's a security bug and here's like the walkthrough of it. And every once in a while when they do show up, everyone loves reading about it. Yeah. So like one thing that we added here, uh, historically like a bug bounty program uh, is known as like a threat intelligence feed. Mm -hmm. Let these external attackers tell you what's going on in your infrastructure that you may not know about and use their kind of knowledge and skills to augment what you, what you know. Well, we added like one additional field to our like internal tracking of these whenever we made like kind of the issues move over into our bug tracking system, uh, which was what was the commit that created this, right? Oh, yeah. And then what did that give us? Well, one, it gave us it gave us the place where the mistake was made. We can understand kind of organizational context. Was a lot of change happening at the time? Was it super fast? Like, is there is this a thing we could have ever seen? Is right, that a class of problem child. Yeah, is this a thing that this, does this problem happen in the software or does this problem happen with this person, right. right? Because what we're identifying is instead of trying to boil the ocean and teach you everything, right? Give you that PhD course in security, uh, like here's all the things that can go bad in security at Coinbase, like to the specific lines of code. Why don't we just go find people who've had some of these failure cases, identify what they are. You know, if we realize that this is an easy to make mistake, use them and help them teach the rest of their team about how to do a better job going forward. Like why waste an opportunity when it's just sitting right there in front of you? Like that's the beauty of having a Git-based system. You know exactly what the code is. So let's imagine for a minute that I don't have a security expert working for my company, right? Um, and, and I'm aware now, oh, we're taking credit cards. So we might, you know, we, we might want some security or, you know, we have some customer data that's proprietary that we want to protect or whatever. Right. Um, what's my first step? You know, if, if I'm, you know, number two or number three at the company and we don't have anybody who can come in and do the training and point these issues out and say, Hey, you know, do this, not that don't do this, please do that. Make sure you cover this, et cetera. I've seen kind of the other perspective of it. Companies that haven't had any kind of security footprint, like they don't have a, like a security specific team and they're asking for help and they're just saying like, where, what do we do? Yeah. Generally, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, generally what happens, it's like they get referred to a security person through like a friend of a friend of a friend, right? Somewhere through the woodwork, somebody pops up and says, hey, Shamik, can you go talk to this team? They need a little bit of help. They want to know what to think about what to focus right. on. And, you know, just kind of start with that. There's a bunch of material. If you're like particularly motivated, you want to be the security person or you like that's your responsibility area um, that depending on where you sit and where you land in the organization, like it has different amounts of relevance. Uh, one of the simplest tools, simplest, sorry. One of the first tools here uh, that I always go to pick up is let's just threat modeling. And the, the simple definition of threat modeling is like, given what the thing is, what else could it possibly do, right? Where else can it go wrong? Um, you, may, you may run out of creativity um, and that's fine over time, that, that's experience, right? Your creativity comes from more exposure. Uh, but what you won't run out of is just like, you'll already have a list of things you care about. And just start asking that question to other people. It's like, hey, uh, this is a wrench. What else can you do with the wrench? Well, it turns out this wrench you can throw really hard, right? If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Um, and so how, 
How how is somebody going to pick up this wrench and throw it at us? <laughs> no, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, one other area that I hear about with security is just uh, dependencies, right? So, you know, maybe it's not the code I wrote. Maybe it's the code that I'm pulling off of NPM or Ruby Gems or, you know, uh, I can't remember what the Python package manager is, but. You know, so so yeah, you know, you're you're you pull in somebody else's code because it makes it really easy for you to write your code, and then it turns out, hey, there's a vulnerability in here. You know, they didn't put it in on purpose, but you know, somebody found it and it's there, and you know, I need to upgrade. It's npm does a good job because it'll actually tell you we know there's a vulnerability you need to upgrade, right? Yeah. But some of the other ones don't. So how do I keep track of all of that for an app that I'm running? That one's tricky. Um, there's kind of two sets of concerns when I think about it as a security person. The first is uh, we've seen a rash of dependency authors, individual credentials getting compromised. Like they, and then somebody takes that and just uploads a vulnerable version. Yep. So now you're doing the right thing of you're updating because there's a new version out and you should update when there's a new version out. Turns out what you updated to like specifically tries to steal or violate some principle of trust um, that you had established for your application. Yeah, there was. Yeah, and there was one. It's like both Ruby Gems and NPM have had recent yeah. recent examples, but this like threat vector, like software yes. supply chain, yes. has existed forever, right? Yeah. It's just like uh, what with the whole what was it the Huawei servers um, coming out of some mic uh, the microsystems or what have you, <laughs> but the the core there was uh, if. It's not in your control in any pipeline. Like at some point you are doing trust or you're doing a lot of like outside of house verification. Like I tell my developers sanity check a couple things. Right. Like one, is it doing funky crypto, right? Is it trying to find crypto keys? Is it trying to find your like wallet keys for like, right. you know, uh, crypto related material, cryptocurrency in this case. Um, two, is it making servers or web requests where it doesn't make any sense for this thing to make servers or web requests? Because in our case, it's either tampering the data or it's stealing the data, exfiltrating the data. Um, if you can hit a couple, like a couple more of those sanity checks, depending on what you care about, you can probably like kind of work through these libraries. Now you, you take something like underscore JS or, you know, one of these big kind of everything in the kitchen sink type packages, you're, you're in a world of hurt trying to do any kind of validation verification there. Very cool. So, um, just kind of rewinding a little bit. Um, when I asked you what your talk was about specifically, it was about moving the security concerns further up in the pipeline, right? So you're thinking about them earlier. And that seems like more of a mindset thing. We've talked a lot about how to do security and how, how to think about security. But yeah, how do you make it that first class concern that comes in at the same time as, you know, what framework we're going to use or, um, you know, how are we going to deploy this thing once we have anything to deploy? A lot of that is about understanding your organizational perspective, right? Like what does the company have to care about? Uh, for most companies, it's there needs to be a product to secure, right? What are success criteria for that product? How do we know that we've hit what we actually wanted to ship? Like what is the core functionality that needs to exist, right? Now, the rest of this is like non-functional requirements if we're speaking agile. It's like given the like those core user story that we want to solve, what is the way we want to solve it? Um, it's almost like a little too easy at Coinbase because it's very, very easy for me to describe the problem area. Right. User data, user funds. Right. We lose either of those, we lose trust. Coinbase yeah. is built on trust, right? You wouldn't use a financial institution that you couldn't trust. And so in respect to that, it's super easy for me to go almost up and down the entire management chain. Right, because I'm not just talking to my developers about trust, right? I'm talking to the eng managers, the eng directors, the VPs. I'm talking to my PMs. And in fact, some of the highest leverage that we get are just PMs that are deeply concerned about how trustable their product is, right? They're pushing their eng teams to work with us, right? I talk to execs and say, hey, you own this part of the company. What is your intersection with trust? What is an acceptable threshold here? Right. Where are we being like efficient with our security work? Where are we kind of overspending um, and just start breaking down the different pieces based off of how they fit to the individual person? Just talk to Brian. Right. Brian's like, well, security is obvious. It's like, what is a major cause of failure for for a cryptocurrency exchange? Well, they lose the money. 
Um, why do they lose the money? Generally because of some kind of security or operational gap. Well, let's not have security or operational gaps that cause our like major competitors to fail. So it's like, what is the actual narrative for your company, like for your environment? In certain cases, it's not clear, right? And you do tons and tons of digging uh, and you come out with the fact that there's like this huge multivariate function that's like, this person cares only about this small thing. This other person cares about this other thing. And now in order to put it together into like a cohesive story, right? We're just going every which way uh, in terms of actually getting the message across. But if you're not doing that work, uh, you're, not, you're gonna have a hard time getting any, any kind of buy-in or uplift, right? If nobody cares about security whatsoever, you're just like, you're tilting at a windmill, right? You gotta start with somebody who cares. And it might be you're the person who cares and you ask these questions uh, to spark that train of thought in somebody else. Like you did this thing, it's cool. Is it secure enough? And you're looking at some software output that you have and you're like, well, is it secure enough? And what am I, okay, in that case, what do I actually yeah. care about if it's secure enough? Right. And when do I know I've done a good job? Right, just start establishing those parameters. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, just, just knowing where you're, what you care about, I guess, and then securing that. That's like absolutely the simplest thing. What do I care about, right? When has this succeeded? Well, it can do X. I was like, well, does it, what if it can do more than X? You're like, well, that'd be nice too. What if it can do this other thing that's well beyond X? In fact, it's like anti-X. You're like, well, actually, okay, that's not great. Let's go figure out what those boundary conditions are. Gotcha. Uh, I really want to do an Adventures in DevOps episode and just have you dig, dig into this with the rest of the panel. Um, so I'll probably invite you back to that. But in the meantime, if people want to learn more about this, are there good resources out there? And if they want to follow you online, are there good places for them to do that? Yeah, I don't have a great online presence. Uh, I'm mostly on LinkedIn. And even then, I'm kind of thin on LinkedIn. Uh, Coinbase has an engineering blog, and our security team does upload kind of regularly about things that we find, things that we've run into. Uh, most recent kind of big splash that we had was somebody used a, a zero day, so like a previously unknown exploit in Firefox, uh, specifically targeting our systems uh, and our, and our like engineering laptops. And so we were resilient to that. And that's a great story to read through as well. Um, a lot of like the fundamentals of security, if we've got a bunch of like web application security people tangled web, uh, is a book we recommend that hits a lot of like the core browser security functions. Um, it's a little, and the, the other book that I like that's a little bit harder to read is just called threat modeling. It's written by Adam Shostak, who's literally like invented the field, uh, as far as anybody is concerned. Um, and he lays out a lot of just the basic principles of how do you just approach this untenable problem of what can go wrong. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. Hey folks, we are here at GitLab Commit and uh, we are talking to Jasmine James. And uh, she spoke earlier about how Delta went cloud native, which is really cool stuff. Do you want to just uh, kind of before the before we recorded this, you kind of explained a little bit more. Do you want to just go into that and then I can ask you a bunch of questions and we can see where we end up? Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much. So today, the focus of my talk was Delta's cloud native journey and um, pretty much what sparked it. And as we walk through that journey, what are some of the key decisions that we made that allowed us to achieve workflow portability across multiple public clouds? So this stems from tooling selections to platform as a service selections and also maintaining a, a great developer experience. So that's it in a gist. Nice. So, um, yeah, what prompted this? Because I see a lot of these big companies and some of them, yeah, they seem to be on all the clouds. And then some of them, it's like, we have a data center. Thank you very much. Right. So, so yeah. So how do you, how do you balance that and what prompted you to move? 
Right. So I think that we knew that we had to do something in order to remain competitive and to achieve true business agility and have just the will to like just scale rapidly because our customers, they want what they want. So by implementing cloud native concepts and moving into like Kubernetes containerization type strategies, this was like the natural next step um, because we've first step was installing it on-prem, right? We had a data center, let's put a cluster there, um, get familiar with what this means. But then the use cases emerged of, okay, there are some workflows or work workloads that we have to kind of have really, really large compute for. So do we buy the infrastructure or do we leverage somebody that already has it for a short amount of time? So those use cases started to emerge. And we are partners with a lot of big vendors, Microsoft, a lot of them. So of course they were like, hey, we have a solution for you. So we didn't commit to anyone just yet, but um, I think that by selecting a platform as a service, we are enabled to kind of scale and put a cluster in an AWS, a GCP, or an Azure, and really be able to run our workloads there while not having to spend like capital on infrastructure and use it for a minimal amount of time. So that's what sparked it. And uh, yeah, that's where we are. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, you've got a lot of things running cloud native. One of the things that you talked about was just avoiding vendor lock-in, right? And in particular, I'm curious about this in two ways. One is, is yeah, how do you avoid writing things so that you can't move it off of AWS into Azure, out of Azure, into Google Cloud Platform? So let's start there, and then I'll ask my other question in a minute. Okay. Awesome, because I was scared I was going to have to remember both. Um, so really what we're thinking about, so vendor lock, you can think about it in two ways. In a way, Delta, we are locked into a vendor. Um, we've selected a platform as a service, which is OpenShift in our case. Um, we leveraged RHEL heavily, so it was natural for us to go in that route. Um, but avoiding the vendor lock on the public cloud space by having a platform as a service that we're installing um, and that we can scale to, we're not really tying into any one capability of the public cloud. So when you're leveraging like the orchestration um, capability on AWS or Azure, you're there and you have to stay. Your developers learn that one thing and that's it. But if you leverage your on-prem um, platform that's also in the cloud, it's a seamless experience. So that's how we've not like locked in um, per se. That being said, we are leveraging some of the features um, of the public cloud. So when you think about an AWS Lambda for serverless or function um, based um, workflows, then you know those are things we do plan on leveraging, but loosely. Um, when we're, we're gonna try to tie it into one platform so that it's still seamless um, and not really locked in all that heavily. No, that makes a lot of sense. So you essentially manage infrastructure to provide infrastructure, and then and then you run everything on that, and that way it's all it's all common, and then you can move it if you need to. Um, the other question that I had is, yeah, a lot of people they seem to adopt AWS. You know, they go whole hog into all the things that they offer, or they go to Azure and they're whole hog into Azure or GCP or whatever, right? Oracle, Oracle Cloud. You know, and so they, they learn all those systems and they, they, they use them. And I guess I'm wondering why not just build the expertise? Because having a deep expertise a lot of times is very valuable as opposed to, you know, knowing this system and that system and that system and the other system. So, yeah, why, why spread your infrastructure out across the different clouds? I think that historically a lot of large organizations have done just that. If you think about the IBMs of the world, you buy everything IBM. Right. And I think that we learned our lesson from being tied to one vendor. You're you're really there for all time and you're just subject to whatever the vendor, you know, does or is going on. So I think that you kind of hedge your bets when you put like not all your eggs in one basket, to use that analogy, um, and you're just spreading it across. So especially with an organization like us, we have a lot of mission critical applications. So if there is ever an availability issue within the public cloud or just something's broken, right, it would be very, very um, impactful to um, our bottom line and our brand and things like that. So I think spreading that workload across and also having an on-prem as a backup is a great way to go um, because you're not really locked in and it's a lot less risk in a way. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, when you went cloud native, what were some of the things that you ran into? Because, I mean, the, the server model is pretty well understood, right? And uh, I'm sure you had machines that had a lot of life left in them. Um, so, so I understand some of the flexibility and some of the other reasons for doing it, but, but 
what did you run into as you made that transition? I think the biggest thing, you know, besides the obvious things, you got to, you know, one containers is like, you know, your mind, we're blowing developers minds at Delta. We have a lot of legacy employees and, you know, they're used to VMs. They're used to the monolithic application. So um, one, deconstructing your um, applications into microservice, that was kind of like a thing we had to do. And then um, I think the educational aspect has been one of the hardest things because there's so many different concepts to learn, 12 factor, all these different things you have to consider. And it's a lot at one time too. You're not only changing the infrastructure, you're changing the way you construct applications. So I think that we still have a challenge there with education and making sure that not only are teams using our platforms in the right way, but are you architecting your applications in a cloud native way to achieve like the value that we're looking for from going cloud native in the first place? So that's been our biggest challenge. And we're still, you know, trying to solve that. Um, we have an immersive educational program called the Dojo at Delta, where we bring development teams through and help them help enable them with all these new concepts, new tooling. It's a lot of new stuff. So we're just trying to figure out a way how to ease the pain of that transition. Yeah. It's it's so interesting to me just that you're talking about the the mental challenges, right? And just getting people to the point where they can conceive of how this all works and understand how it all goes together. Um, it, it's it's such a metaphor for life, right? It's I, I I can't even imagine having done that. You know, I've I've been training for a marathon, for example, and one of my neighbors basically was like, you know, that's so inspirational, and it's just because they can never picture themselves doing it, right? And it's, it's the same thing here where we're talking about, okay, yeah, how, how do I think about this? How do I look at this? Because I'm so used to the, the way that it is, but you can't move forward with your old thinking. And so you have to get to that point. And it's hard. It's really hard, especially if you've been doing it for a really, really long time. So how far into this journey are you folks? Are, are you all the way there? Are you still working on it? I mean, yeah. Not there yet by any means. Um, I think we still have a long way to go. Um, my An engineer on my team and I just gave a talk this afternoon about our journey. And um, I think maybe like a year and a half ago, we were just piloting our first three applications. Um, we've come a long way since then. I think we have about 90 applications in production now um, using their platform as a service that's on-prem. And we're also piloting four apps into the public cloud right now as well. But um, that's just a drop in a bucket compared to you know where we have to what we have to get to from an application standpoint. And it's kind of like we don't know where we are in a way because there's so many monolithic applications at Delta that have to be deconstructed into microservice. It's kind of like, how do you measure how far you have to go if the applications haven't been you know, redefined into microservice architecture? So it's hard to measure, but the good thing is that we are moving forward and that we're making an impact to the development community at Delta. And we have, a, you know, we're in good company with the community that we have here at GitLab. So it's, I think we're on our way and, and I feel really good about it. Are there any applications or aspects of applications that you're really kind of dreading having to move into microservices and then move into the cloud just because they're old or not well-maintained or, you know, not written in the way that makes them conducive to that kind of move or things like that? So I'm an optimist. So no, they don't scare me. I think that, you know, never back down from a challenge. And I think that we'll get there. Um, of course, we're taking the low hanging fruit first, right? Those are applications that are easy. Um, they're big, but they're very like modularized, right? Um, but the, we'll, we will run into challenges. But I think it's just, you know, we'll get there towards the end of our journey. But we'll get there, I think. Um, so I'm optim optimistic about the future when it comes to all of our applications. That makes sense. If the next time I book a ticket, it doesn't work, should I call you? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, there's a number for that. I can give you the number if you want, not me. <laughs> no, it's all good. I I was totally kidding, but um yeah, I just think it's interesting to see uh, you know some of these applications especially in these larger companies, you know. Yeah, they're starting to make these moves and I'm I'm wondering some of the, you know, airlines they don't really have a a reputation for, you know, being behind the times, you know, I talk to people who work for insurance companies or banks or something like that. And it's like, it's like, yeah, we know we have to get off the mainframe, right? right. We have to get off of the, the 1990 something, you know, machine. And we just don't know how we're going to do it. Right. And so it doesn't sound like that's what you're running into. I am a little curious on the, 
like on more modern apps, you know, let's say that I've written an application, I've been hosting it on virtual machine in the cloud, but you know, it's, it's, it's a stand-in for a, a traditional server, right? I'm not using Kubernetes. I'm not using containers. I'm not using some of these cloud services. It's all, I installed Postgres. I installed, you know, Ruby on Rails or Express and, you know, and it all just runs there. How do I need to start thinking about things to make this transition for my company? I think that we, at Delta as a company, the reason we made the transition is because like we had a very like long value stream. So you talked about VM installing um, the middleware in order to be able to support your application. The process for an application team to do just that was months at Delta. So our whole like kind of start to this was how do we condense that time and make it easier for our developers to get to production. So I think that, you know, in a small scale, if you can do it yourself and you don't have a large amount of applications, yeah, run it on a VM, make it, you know, make it you. But for Delta, we have to have a common governance strategy and it has to be able to be adopted by the masses. And for us, Kubernetes was the way because we could containerize things, um, pretty much allow the developers to manage, you know, networking, manage um, essentially infrastructure um, in a controlled way via the platform as a service. So it made sense for us and, and we wanted to empower the developers. So if you're already empowered, hey, great. But we we wanted to kind of have a controlled empowerment and the platform as a service has enabled us to do that. Yeah. So we're at GitLab Commit, and I'm a little curious, how has GitLab played into this whole process? So GitLab was the first company that um, we partnered with on our tooling journey about two and a half years ago um, for version control. Previous to GitLab, we had um, Rational Clearcase. I don't know if you're familiar with that, um, but it's a very legacy um, kind of networked version control, like um, server client client server um, postured um, version control. And we also had a homegrown release engineering tool. So we had to get new tools to go on this journey, absolutely. And GitLab was the first one that we partnered with. Right now, we're only using them for version control, but based off this conference and conversations that we're having. Um, we're going to start looking into leveraging GitLab CI as a secondary offering for our development community because it's low barrier to entry. You get a YAML file and you're you're gone. You know what I mean? So um, we're wanting wanting to provide multiple tracks for teams. So that way they're not just doing things on their own. You have options now, um, and maybe your application you know is it's it, it's running in OpenShift, but you can leverage GitLab CI or Jenkins for it. So. We want to provide options, and I think that as we go on that journey, GitLab is, you know, in the community, you're going to be able to support us. Support us, so it's really, really good. Awesome. Now, if people want to follow this journey for Delta, or maybe they want to see what you're working on, or thinking about, or writing about, or whatever, is there a good place to go find that information? Yeah. So I'm not on Twitter, and I've gotten crap about that all day. I know. So I might have to make one after this conference. But I am on LinkedIn, Jasmine James, um, jasmine.l.james, if you're looking. Um, and yeah, I like to share my thoughts, share articles, best practices, and connect with people that are doing the same thing so that we all don't have to go through the same BS. <laughs> and, and what's your official title or job description at Delta? So I am the manager of the DevOps Center of Excellence. Um, the E is called a COE, but it's excellence, um, enablement, you know, those two things. We just pretty much make the developers happy by enabling through tooling and DevOps practices. Um, yeah, that's it. Very cool. Well, um, I'm going to encourage people to go check out your talk. Um, I would also like to invite you to come on our Adventures in DevOps podcast. And um, I'm sure they're going to have better and more educated questions than I will but you know yeah but thanks for coming and talking to me bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly the world's fastest CDN deliver your content fast with Cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y dot com to learn more